I'm Dr. Sterling. I'm a board-certified OBGYN and mom. Welcome to the Becoming Moms podcast, where I give you the step-by-step to optimizing your physical and emotional wellness in pregnancy so you can create a nourishing environment for your baby, your family, and yourself. The information shared in this podcast is intended for general education purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or another qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you heard in this podcast. All right, lovelies, let's dive in to this week's episode. If you want to hear in the no truce, the real story behind the restrictions in pregnancy, and specifically the three ones I get asked about the most, sushi, hot baths, and caffeine, this episode is for you. I'm going to be sharing where the restrictions come from, as well as the restrictions I followed and the ones I didn't in my own pregnancies. This is the true story of three pregnancy restrictions. Find out what happens when an OBGYN stops being polite and starts getting real. So let's first address, where do all these pregnancy restrictions come from? In the Hebrew Bible, the book of Judges to be exact, we find the first recorded discussion of the impact of alcohol and unclean food on offspring. But the modern science regarding teratogens, looking at exposures and factors that cause malformations of an embryo, didn't gain traction until the 1950s. And the first public awareness campaign regarding the link between alcohol consumption in pregnancy and fetal alcohol syndrome didn't occur until 1977 in the United States. As research was conducted, we learned more about the impact of medications, alcohol, caffeine, viruses, bacteria, and parasites on the development of the embryo and fetus. Public awareness campaigns about the risk of these exposures in pregnancy were deployed. There are many benefits to public awareness campaigns about exposures in pregnancy, but there are also some downsides. Because we live in a patriarchal society, we are typically far, far more concerned with an unborn baby or fetus than with the well-being of the pregnant person. Now, as a mother myself, when I'm pregnant, there are a lot of circumstances in which I'm more concerned with my baby than myself, and that's okay because it's me. I am making that decision. But when it's everyone else consistently prioritizing fetal over maternal health, we create new problems. For example, one problem we have now is the resistance, both by pregnant people as well as healthcare providers, to proceed with necessary treatments, especially medications during pregnancy. This is your baby. And of course, you don't want to do anything that could cause them harm. But you might also be wondering, are all of these restrictions really necessary? Or is this all just a bunch of patriarchal BS? Here's what it boils down to. We want to be reasonable regarding exposures in pregnancy. I believe you deserve the information, the why behind the recommendations. I believe given the information and its context, we can allow you to make the decision without shame and without telling you what to do. Exposures in pregnancy matter. Food safety matters. Listeria is a real thing. 
fever, and heat at the wrong time during development can cause birth defects, and high levels of caffeine can potentially cause growth issues in pregnancy. So let's dive into the first of three restrictions, sushi. There's no denying it. Consuming uncooked meat, shellfish, and fish is going to increase your risk of developing a foodborne illness. But instead of focusing on sushi specifically, because there are types of sushi, especially in the United States, that don't have raw fish, let's talk about raw fish and raw shellfish, like oysters. Raw fish is going to increase your risk of coming into contact with bacteria like salmonella that can make you sick. Sometimes people get sick enough from salmonella that it ends up impacting their baby. But if you are okay, your baby should be okay too. That is not the case for bacteria like listeria and the parasite toxoplasmosis. Those infections can directly infect your baby and cause severe problems. While listeria can grow on raw fish, we don't see it very often. More frequently, we see listeria infections coming from unpasteurized dairy products, deli meats, and unwashed produce. But that doesn't mean you are safe from listeria with raw fish. It is entirely possible that we could have an outbreak of listeria from raw fish. But it's also true that one of the more recent listeria outbreaks was due to a particular brand of ice cream. So, yes, raw fish could be a source of listeria, but so could a lot of other things. While very serious in pregnancy, listeria is rare, especially in the United States and Canada. Listeria accounts for less than 1% of reported cases of foodborne infections overall. In pregnant individuals, the incidence in the United States is estimated to be three cases per 100,000 population. I've seen one case. Many of my colleagues have never had a patient with a listeria infection. The other bad guy I mentioned earlier is the parasite toxoplasmosis, which can directly infect baby. This parasite is the reason you hear that pregnant people shouldn't change cat litter boxes because cat poop can contain these parasites. Toxo is more of an issue with raw shellfish than raw fish. And while the absolute risk is low, toxoplasmosis can be devastating in pregnancy. From a personal perspective, I will tell you there is no way I would consume raw shellfish in pregnancy. The risk is just too high. Not to mention, I don't eat shellfish anyway because I'm Jewish, but even if I wasn't, I would avoid. At the end of the episode, I'll share a restriction that I followed in my pregnancies that we don't often talk about for the prevention of toxoplasmosis in pregnancy. So, when members of Sterling Parents come to me asking, is sushi really that bad? In Japan, it's recommended for pregnant people. I explain the above. And then I ask, how important is for you to consume raw fish? And what level of risk are you comfortable with? Some people are comfortable with a small amount of risk, and others are going to lose sleep if they eat a piece of raw fish. Personally, while I would never consume raw shellfish in pregnancy, I have on occasion had sushi or poke with raw fish. Across the 30 months I've spent pregnant in my life, I've probably had raw fish four or five times from trusted sources. That was the risk I was comfortable with. All right, let's move on to hot baths. 
can you really not take a hot bath your entire pregnancy? So here's the deal. Fevers, so a temperature of 100.4 Fahrenheit or 38 degrees Celsius, and hot baths, hot tubs in the first trimester are associated with birth defects. It's not just the first trimester, but really specifically during a period of time we call embryogenesis. Embryogenesis is when the organ systems are forming, the limbs are forming, the heart is forming. Once we pass embryogenesis, which technically occurs for the first eight to 10 weeks, we usually say 10 weeks to give ourselves a little bit of a, a buffer. The first 10 weeks of pregnancy is when embryogenesis occur is occurring. After the 10 week mark, you cannot get a birth defect from an exposure. Okay. You can impact fetal development, but you can't cause a birth defect, right? So once you already have five fingers or the palate is formed, an exposure can't cause a limb defect um, or a finger defect or can't cause a cleft palate because the palate has already been formed. Okay. So once you understand that, that we are really concerned with increasing your core body temp in the first trimester, especially those first 10 weeks. After that period of time, heat and fevers aren't as critical. So my personal practice is to just say no to hot baths and hot tubs during the first trimester. Now, if you get a fever in the first, tri first trimester and it happens, the good news is that we do have data that people who take acetaminophen, Tylenol, to reduce their fever can bring their overall risk of birth defects much closer to the baseline risk that all pregnant people have of having a baby with a birth defect. And that risk of congenital anomalies or birth defects is about 2 to 3% of all babies. Okay? So during the first trimester, just say no. No hot tubs, no hot baths. After that, the main concern in pregnancy is that when you are hot, okay, whether you're in a hot bath, a hot tub, a sauna, whatever, what happens in your body is to in order to attain homeostasis, so we, your body wants to stay at, at the right temperature because your body functions best at, you know, say around 98 degrees Fahrenheit. It doesn't want to get too much higher unless it's sick and fever can be helpful to our immune system in some circumstances, but I digress. <laughs> your body wants to maintain its core temperature. So if you get in a hot tub that's, you know, 104 degrees, your body is going to do things to try to keep your core temperature lower. One of the things it does is, especially on your skin, is it's going to dilate your blood vessels so that the heat can dissipate and leave your body, okay? So when you're pregnant, you already are in a state of, vas of vasodilation, typically, compared to when you're not pregnant, okay? So your blood vessels are typically a little bit more relaxed because of the progesterone hormone. And that's why some people get lightheaded and their, their blood pressure decreases in pregnancy. So when you're exposed to heat and you're pregnant, if you're maybe already lightheaded or your blood pressure is already kind of borderline low, that heat could potentially make the problem worse. So that's our main concern with hot tubs and saunas and hot baths later in pregnancy after embryogenesis. So 
that means that for some people, a hot bath is going to be totally okay and actually quite relaxing and lovely. But if you're feeling right, really lightheaded or low blood pressure has been an issue for you, you might want to be more cautious. Okay, we've covered sushi and hot baths, which means it's time to talk coffee and caffeine. The question of caffeine in pregnancy is somewhat complicated because there is mixed data and there's questions about its impact on pregnancy loss and fetal growth. I'm going to read from a summary of what we know about the risk of caffeine in pregnancy. A 2011 systematic review of both human and animal studies of the risk of spontaneous abortion, aka miscarriage, from caffeine exposure concluded there was fair to good evidence that consumption of caffeinated beverages during pregnancy at a level less than 6 milligrams per kilogram of body weight a day does not increase the risk of miscarriage. So for example, I'm 180 pounds. So for me, that would be less than 490 milligrams of caffeine a day. And a measuring cup of coffee has about 95 milligrams. Okay, so studies that noted a link between caffeine intake and spontaneous abortion generally reported a dose-response relationship. That means the more caffeine you had, the higher the risk. But they differed in their conclusions about a threshold for a safe amount of caffeine consumption. An increased risk of spontaneous abortion generally was not observed until self-reported intake levels were greater than three cups or greater than 300 milligrams of caffeine per day. There is also a study that used an objective assessment of caffeine exposure. So instead of relying on the subjects for telling us how much caffeine they intake, they actually measured, okay, objective. They observed an increased risk beginning at caffeine doses greater than 600 milligrams a day. Thus, the majority of research supports limiting caffeine, but not necessarily eliminating all caffeine. Most experts agree that limiting caffeine intake to less than 200 or 300 milligrams per day is unlikely to impact one's risk of pregnancy loss. The other question with caffeine is its impact on fetal growth. I am again going to quote a summary of the research on caffeine. Although observational and cohort studies reported conflicting data on the impact of caffeine and birth weight, Two meta-analyses found that maternal caffeine intake during pregnancy was associated with a higher risk of delivering low birth weight infant, defined as birth weight less than 2,500 grams, as compared with the reference group with no or very low caffeine intake. The risk of low birth weight increased as maternal caffeine intake increased. In the dose-response analysis, each 100 milligrams per day increment of maternal caffeine intake was associated with a 3 to 13% higher risk of low birth weight, which further supports the current recommendation to minimize caffeine intake during pregnancy. To summarize, and now this is my personal summary, it is unlikely that consuming 200 milligrams or less of caffeine a day has any impact on pregnancy loss, and it is unlikely that at a low dose, it would impact fetal growth. However, if you have a history of a baby with growth restriction, or you are at high risk of having a baby with gr growth restriction due to a medical condition, say, like lupus, 
you might not, or your doctor might not, be comfortable with any caffeine. For members of Sterling Parents, Sterling Pearlies, who aren't comfortable with any caffeine in pregnancy, we've explored other ways to feel alert in the morning and replace the ritual of morning coffee. Now, there's another exposure that we need to talk about. And if you are a frequent listener of Becoming Moms, you probably know what I'm going to say. We need to talk about stress. So the data on stress in pregnancy tells us that stress is associated with blood pressure issues in pregnancy, low birth weight, and preterm birth. And there is also evidence that it impacts fetal development. This is why I'm so passionate about reducing the mental load, because the mental load is stress. And we want to give our babies the best, right? That's why we care about raw fish, hot baths, and caffeine, and stress. But Here's the issue. When we put the pressure on each individual decisions to give our babies the best, we can sometimes push ourselves towards increasing our stress and take us further away from our goal. We want to be incredible mothers, but the stress of trying to be that perfect, incredible mother is detrimental to our goal. We need to take the pressure off of all the little choices and decisions we make. So you're probably wondering, what do I do instead? Here is my suggestion. Directly address your deep desire to be an incredible mother. Okay. How you do that is individual to you. No one can tell you what that means for you. What makes me an incredible mother is different than what makes you an incredible mother. But There are core skills, core life skills that make for fulfilled lives and support our emotional, mental, and physical wellness. In working with experts in the parenting space, combing through the research on health and happiness, I've identified nine skills. Those include mindfulness, boundaries, and know thyself. So if you are putting pressure on each decision to prove to yourself that you're a good enough mom, I highly recommend instead picking a few life skills to work on, not all at once. We work through these nine skills inside Sterling Parents over the course of trying to conceive, pregnancy, the first year postpartum, and the toddler years. So we spread it out over that entire journey. And we don't focus on perfecting or being perfect on these skills. We focus on getting 2% better gentle growth, because that's how we evolve without adding to our mental load and to our stress. Gentle 2% growth and the amazing impact of intention plus attention. So oftentimes in working on these skills, we just talk about setting an intention to be better on this skill and then just paying attention to the times in which we are better and we're doing a great job and the times in which we really struggle to lean in and live this skill. All right, we are almost at the end of the episode, but I promise to tell you the rule that I follow in pregnancy to reduce my risk of exposure to toxoplasmosis. If you are a gardener or work with dirt and soil, wear gloves. I don't know why this isn't talked about more, but it's really important because soil and dirt can contain toxoplasmosis. And I'm actually not a huge gardener, but 
I do love to dig up and pull weeds in my backyard just because I'm weird like that. So I always, especially when I'm pregnant, wear gloves. All right, my lovelies, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you are considering becoming a member of Sterling Parents, a Sterling Pearly, head on over to sterlingparents.com. Until next time. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Becoming Moms. If you are looking for more support from me during your pregnancy journey, head over to sterlingparents.com to learn more about our membership. The Sterling Parents membership now comes with a private Instagram account where members can send me direct messages 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Pregnancy is hard. You deserve support. Head over to sterlingparents.com to get the best support available for your pregnancy.